you know, in Moscow, we were dealing with the the victims and trying to uh, reconstruct using computer simulations and uh, models, trying to reconstruct the circumstances of the exposures. Of course, you know, it's, it's not really possible to get a, a solid handle on that without seeing the, the control room and the the destroyed reactor complex. So after we sort of got things, I would say, slightly under control, uh, I flew down to Kiev and then I took a helicopter overflight over the uh, reactor complex. And then eventually, you know, we landed and, and visited the, the, the nuclear power facility. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mangan, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine on route. All right, welcome back for part two of The American Doctor at Chernobyl with Dr. Robert Gale. If you missed the first episode, definitely go back and check that out. As we learned last time, Dr. Gale, a bone marrow transplant specialist from UCLA, rose to international prominence after being the first American physician invited by the Soviet Union to treat patients suffering acute radiation trauma only days after the horrific incident at Chernobyl. Our journey continues as Dr. Gale is flown in by helicopter to personally survey the Chernobyl nuclear power plant only weeks after the meltdown of reactor number four. We'll see what it was like walking the eerily empty streets of Pripyat. This was literally one of the most dangerous and heavily restricted areas on the planet. For an outsider, especially an American, to be personally inspecting this area, actually treating patients, all during the height of the Cold War, was simply an unthinkable scenario, until it actually happened. And for those of you who really enjoyed the recent hit HBO miniseries on Chernobyl, we'll spend a little more time there. Then we'll move on to subsequent nuclear accidents such as Tokyo Amura and Fukushima and Dr. Gale's firsthand experience with those. We'll discuss his lessons learned and his thoughts on the future of nuclear energy. And we'll see what he's up to today. This was an incredible part two for this series. We know you're going to enjoy it. So with that said, let's get started. Robert, thanks again for joining us for round two here. You've been doing quite a bit of traveling. I think you're in China right now. It's about 1030 at night, your time. So uh, much easier for us at 1030 or 930 in Keith's time to come on. But thanks for joining us again. Welcome back. My pleasure. So where are you in China right now? Um, right now I'm in Guangzhou, which... Um, Americans may remember it used to be called Canton mm -hmm. in uh, southeast China, quite close to Hong Kong. Yeah, and there's a lot going on in Hong Kong right now, which we'd get way off track if we start talking about that. But uh, this being right. July 2019, if anyone's paying attention to the news there, not, not right. an insignificant, well, you, insignificant area of the world at the moment. Right. Well, you would be surprised um, at the difference in coverage of the Hong Kong events in in you know in the world press and in China, where it's barely mentioned. Actually, I don't know if I would be surprised by that. That's probably probably what I would expect, right, Keith? Yeah. But um, yeah, absolutely. But very interesting. Um, when we last spoke, which was last month, you were in the Republic of Georgia, so it's a pretty heavy travel month for you, um, Robert. I'll talk a little bit about what you're up to nowadays. We'll get to that towards the end of the hour here, but. 
want to jump back into our conversation from last time, pick up where we left off. And I thought a good place to start, this is your book, Final Warning, which you wrote with um, Thomas Hauser not too long after the incident at Chernobyl and your, your experience there. So we'll just jump right in here. I'll just read a small segment. Uh, we reached the power station by mid-afternoon. It's the first time I'd been on the site at ground level. So this is Chernobyl. The mayor of Pripyat was there to greet us, and it, occur- it occurred to me that he'd have a hard time winning re-election since all of his constituents had moved, being evacuated, of course. Then, uh, this is your quote, then I did something which may have been foolish. I went inside the power station. I was curious. I wanted to see what was there. The damaged reactor had been entombed, but units one, two, one and two were producing power again, and I assumed it was safe for me to go. Take us back to that moment, Robert. I mean, this is not too long after the incident, and you're actually walking in to the power plant itself. Um, one, what, what was involved with getting you to the site? Because the Soviets weren't eager for you to visit at first. And then what was your motivation to see this up front? Um. Well, I may have mentioned this in our last interview, but, um, you know, in Moscow, we were dealing with the the victims and trying to uh, reconstruct using computer simulations and uh, models, trying to reconstruct the circumstances of the exposures. But, um, of course, you know, it's, it's not really possible to get a, a solid handle on that without seeing the, the control room and the the destroyed reactor complex. So after we sort of got things, I would say, slightly under control in um, in Kiev, in uh, Moscow, uh, I flew down to Kiev and then I took a helicopter uh, overflight over the uh, reactor complex. And then eventually, you know, we landed and, and visited the, the, the nuclear power facility. What kind of information uh, were you looking for? What what physical th- signs were you looking for to see? You know the extent of the damage, or how much had leaked, or or what did you expect to see? Well, uh, all of those, of course. But um, you know, one of the key elements in our um, analysis of the exposed people is whether they were shielded or not. So, if you are standing in front of a radiation source and your whole body is irradiated to a high dose, that's a circumstance where the, you you know, you might need a bone marrow transplant. But if, for example, one of your limbs, if your arm or your leg was behind a, a, a barrier, well, you have enough bone marrow cells in that shielded arm to, you know, sort of do an autotransplant. The, the, the shielded bone marrow cells will repopulate the other parts of the body. So you, you sort of need to see the area of the accident and understand that if a firefighter rushed in in the middle of the night, would he just be standing there exposed? Would he get whole body radiation? Or might some part of his body be shielded? And that would affect our therapy decisions. I see. And we talked about this last time, and I wanted to give you credit, and I'm still going to give you credit again. I mean, it did take a, a certain amount of bravery to do this. Give us an idea of the people who were taking you in, everyone from the helicopter pilot to the staff who were still working at the power plant, because this was still an active power plant, uh, maybe not at that moment, but they did get it started again. What, what was the mood like with the people you, 
you were with? Well, I, I think the answer lies in, in how um, this, you know, Russians and Soviet people deal with adversity. You know, they are um, like other human beings, but, you, you know, Russians sort of rise to, I think they rise to their finest moment when they're stuck with a problem. So, I mean, you can think of Napoleon's invasion of uh, Russia. You can think of the Nazi invasion of Russia. Um, these people, when there's a crisis, is, is when they really rise to the occasion. And so the people that I dealt with were, you know, I would say real heroes. They were highly motivated, willing to take risks to, you know, to save their country. Um, very fine people. Interesting. And I guess that was a question I should have asked, too. Was the power plant still operational at this point? Because there was more than just reactor number four there. I mean, were people still working there at the moment besides the cleanup effort? Sure. I mean, uh, it's a vital source of electricity. So um, control room, uh, reactor complex number three, which was, you know, proximal to the accident. So that was out of commission for a while. Um, but the, the control rooms of one and two are reasonably far away from the site of the accident. So people were, were working there. The whole complex was not shut down. Interesting. But, you know, the town of Pripyat and the surrounding communities were evacuated very quickly. By the time you got there, most of the population had been evacuated. But a lot of these people worked at the plant, too. So I assume some people had to stay behind, uh, you know, necessary personnel. What was the sense like when you walked through the town and saw you know, what was just weeks before, really, a vibrant community and really a model Soviet city. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, I guess the best thing to think about is a Western ghost town. So, you know, you everybody left um, in a hurry. You know, hundreds of buses came from up from Kiev and just took all the people that were not essential. So... Things are just left uh, helter-skelter. You know, you know, doors are flapping in the wind, windows are... Um, and I've been back to Pripyat a number of times, and it's it's a city that is sort of slowly crumbling. You know, these Soviet um, construction was not uh, of the highest quality to start with, but these, you know, huge uh, 20-story concrete apartment blocks just crumbling. If you go into a, what was a primary school, you just see, you know, it's, it's a very bizarre sight. You know, all the papers are on the desk, all the, um, you know, but things are just crumbling, collapsed. So a Western ghost town. Do you, uh, just aside here, do you find it curious or... I don't know, maybe even a little troubling that uh, there's such a tourism industry around it today, or do you think that's kind of to be expected? I think it's um, it's like the fascination probably with the Titanic, right? I mean, um, these are monumental events. Of course, people going up there um, are not really in any danger. You know, they're, um, it, it, there's only a danger if you would live there. And even then, 
the the only danger would be if you were a young person planning to spend your entire life there. Sure. So we pres- we prescribe. Uh, there were a, a substantial number of older people, particularly older women, that refused our evacuation orders. And, uh, you know, in, we felt that that was reasonable. I mean, if you're 75 years old and you've lived there all your life, your chances of getting cancer from radiation, from, you know, uh, the Chernobyl accident are, are trivial. And so we didn't force these elderly folks to leave the 30-kilometer um, exclusion zone, but we prescribed their, um, them from having, for example, children, their grandchildren, visit them. So use the, the pronoun we. I mean, it's obviously the Soviets making these decisions and undertaking the evacuation, but help us understand the evolution of your relationship with Soviet leadership, because obviously there had to be a trust that started to develop and how much were they starting to rely on you for uh, guidance and, and assistance as they're making these decisions? Well, I mean, uh, the Soviet Union has um, a cadre of very highly trained, highly sophisticated nuclear physicists, radiation physicians, and so forth. So um, the trust... I mean, of course, the the initial element of trust was letting me come in. Sure. Um, in the midst of a huge crisis, and then letting me bring some additional colleagues in. Um, it it was kind of a trade-off because, um, as as we discussed, when when it became clear that the Soviets were trying to cover up the accident. The Soviet government had lost all credibility. So, you know, they needed someone who was believable, um, who could speak to, you know, to the press or speak to the outside world. And so they were counting on me, I mean, in the medical sphere um, and and in some larger spheres, uh, because I would have credibility, um, which they lacked. you know, the trade-off, of course, was that I, you know, told them that I would not reveal things that they, you know, were uncomfortable with. I mean, of course, I would never not tell the truth, but I would conceal, not conceal, but I would refrain from revealing things that they felt were dangerous or inappropriate. And that's interesting because there was tremendous interest in this all around the world and really a vacuum of information. So, you know, you know what people do with the vacuum is they fill it sometimes with their own ideas, especially today. But um, there's enormous pressures. And I imagine you were probably at least approached by um, U.S. intelligence services, even the State Department, you know, at, because you're, you know, the only eyes on the ground seeing this. Um and I don't know that you can talk about that a lot, but, you know, one, were you approached by them? And from their standpoint, they looked at this as a national security issue, obviously. So how did you manage your communication with them and then the press as well? Well, um, I have to distinguish from when I was in the Soviet Union to when I returned. Um, I did have um, 
a couple of chats with our ambassador at the time, Arthur Hartman. Um, but again, I, I would only reveal or discuss things that the Soviets and I you know, had agreed to. You know, about three or four weeks after the accident, um, I told uh, you know, the Soviet leaders that I had contact with uh, of exactly what you're saying, that I, I thought it was time we had gotten things under control and I thought it was time to have a press conference, that if we didn't come forth and discuss um, what was going on, what were the number of injuries, what were the therapeutic interventions, what were the number of fatalities, if we didn't do that, at a press conference that you would get all these um, um, incorrect um, reports. So, for example, American, some American newspapers were reporting that thousands of people had died. So um, the Soviets agreed that that would be the best solution. And we had a press conference um, in Moscow with more than a thousand reporters there. And uh, they they gave me free hand to describe my involvement uh, and what, what my impression of the medical situation was. And and these were reporters from all around the world at this point? Yes, they were they were from everywhere. Yeah. Now it's not it, it it's not what you would regard as a normal press conference. Right. In in the sense in the sense that um, in in those times in the Soviet Union, questions were written out by reporters. And if you were the, the person being interviewed, you'd be handed a pile of questions. And I then see. you would you were expected to to read those questions and respond. And um, uh-huh. I'm not sure if I told you this last time, but I was handed this pile of about 25 written questions. And the first question, when I read it to myself, was why, you know, was the United States and Western governments, why were they exaggerating uh, the casualties and effects of the Chernobyl accident? Um, Obviously, that was planted by either some pro-Soviet journalist or by the KGB, right? But uh, but I realized that actually I was the only person looking at the question, that no one else could see it, and I had the microphone, so uh, <laughs> I revised it slightly to why is it that despite the fact that we're in the midst of a cold war, why is the United States and Western governments trying to help the victims mm. of the Chernobyl accident? And then I gave, a, I gave my answer. Well, there was nothing anyone could do. I mean, right, I was standing point. there alone with a microphone. That's right. And and what was your answer at the time? Well, <clears throat> I explained how uh, we had brought in, you know, that that American people were, you know, like anyone else. That we were, you know, sad that these these firefighters and other people were affected that we had flown in um, tons of medical supplies and equipment, not only from the United States, but from Western Europe. And that, you know, everybody wanted to help, of course, when there's a 
catastrophe of this nature. Yeah, I mean, that had to be an unusual press conference. I can't think of anything, any precedent for that in the Soviet Union. I mean, maybe since Gary Powers was there <laughs> talking to the press there, I, I can't imagine anything like that. It, it must have been a very unusual uh, feeling to find yourself in. But let's talk a little bit about, um, we're going to jump around here, but when you returned to the United States, because you were traveling back and forth, you went very quickly to a, you know, a highly recognizable person, you know, across the globe. I mean, what was that transition like where you come back and enormous attention is on you and people are probably pulling you aside in the airport and ask you questions? I mean, tell us what that was like. Well, uh, of course, um, it, it, it was not like my formal life, but, um, uh, you know, fortunately, um, as a physician, you know, you've got to get back to your job. So, um, I try to put these things aside. My wife is always giving me a reality check. Um, my my son, who's a Hollywood producer, uh, has written a book, the title of which is "You're not that you're not that great, but nor is anybody else." <laughs> so I guess that's that's my model. <laughs> Interesting. Well, we've got a few more questions here about Chernobyl, then we want to move on. Um, one question from our viewers, we had a few of these here. They want to know about acute radiation syndrome and the depiction in the HBO series. So uh, not only you know, did you actually see this, but you know, you've had a little experience in Hollywood, which we're going to talk about. Um, how accurate were these depictions in the movie, um, in the series? And tell us a little bit more about what actually happens when someone you know, is, is that close and has that high a level of exposure, you know, especially the, you know, the first, uh, you know, 30 some people who, who died. Right. So, um, well, I mean, I think the HBO series, um, was a great service and, you know, well done TV miniseries. Um, I have, you know, I, I wrote, I had to write a weekly movie review believe it or not, um, for a medical journal called The Cancer Letter. So after each episode, I, I wrote up a, a review. Um, and again, I, I'm generally positive about it. And But, you know, having spent time in Hollywood, I understand what it takes to write a screenplay. And when you have a miniseries, it's uh, one hour a week, you've got to end it in a way that will you know, get people coming back the next Monday and not watching the baseball game. So you have to take certain liberties. Um, and um, I have to say, by the way, that I'm a failed screenwriter, screenplay writer. So I know all the mistakes you can make. Um, <laughs> but there were, there were a, a number of important mis you know, errors in presentation that I, had, I felt I had to correct. One of them is that the uh, exposed people were radioactive, you know, that they, that they had become radioactive and that they posed a danger to others. There a, was a portrayal of a woman uh, taking care of her husband who is portrayed as being um, highly radioactive and she's pregnant, pregnant right. and, then she, and then she has a child. Well, that's, 
that's great Hollywood stuff. But in reality, uh, these people were exposed to external ionizing radiations. Now, you know, with um, these things being released, of course, their their clothes, and their shoes, and their skin could become contaminated with radionuclides. But, you know, when we brought them to uh, Moscow, we, of course, decontaminated them. You know, we removed their clothes, used chemicals to decontaminate them. So now, except for some small amount of radionuclide that they might have absorbed, you know, inhaled, they're not radioactive. They don't pose a threat to anybody. So that, that was one important correction. A very important correction um, was that this woman whose uh, child was born with a heart defect, a fatal heart defect and liver, supposedly liver uh, fibrosis, you know, which in the HBO series is ascribed to her, the radiation dose she received from her caring for her husband. Well, we, we know uh, what the effects of radiation are on fetuses. So amongst the atomic bomb survivors, there were several hundred pregnant women. And of course, uh, their children, when they gave birth, their children were followed carefully. So amongst these uh, several hundred pregnant women, uh, there were only uh, 29 children that had birth defects. And those birth defects were um, cognitive. So they had, let's say, slight to moderate mental retardation. <clears throat> and all of those children were exposed during the second trimester. Mm. So it's very, very clear. I mean, it's not that radiation can't cause birth defects. But we know the type of birth defects they can cause, and we know the radiation dose that's necessary to cause those effects. So um, this is really important, uh, especially for physicians, because um, we have data on the, the rate of abortions that were performed in Western European countries in the months after the Chernobyl accident. And there was a huge spike in abortions. And the reason for that was that women as far afield as England or Germany, either by themselves or at the advice of their physicians, you know, they said, well, I was pregnant, you know, what do you suggest? And, you know, physicians who don't know anything about radiation, but think they do, they say, well, why take a chance? you know, that you might have a, a child with a birth defect. You should get an abortion. So this is a disaster because no one who was not physically at the plant could have had a child with a birth defect from the Chernobyl radiations. Um, and then finally, the, thing, the last thing that I felt it was important to correct are predictions that thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are going to die because of the radiation released at Chernobyl. And this is simply not true. Again, we can make some, I would say, decent calculations of what might happen. Now, so far, we haven't seen anything. 
Um, and that's a good sign, of course. Uh, doesn't mean we won't see something in the future. But if you were to estimate what would be sort of a worst case scenario from Chernobyl, well, we have a confidence interval, but it might be something between a 10 and 16,000 extra cancers over 80 years. And of, of, of course, that sounds terrible, but you have to remember that 200 million people in the same area would die from cancer during that period. And what Unrelated is that area we're talking about? Is that just well, Eastern we're Europe? Talking is about, it... Well, we make, yeah, I mean, the estimations we're looking at are for Russia, the, the European port of Russia, and for Euro the European Union. So roughly 400 million people. I see. So uh, I just, to, if I can just give you one last statistic, um, for a male, normal male, our like you and me, our lifetime risk of getting cancer is 43%. One in roughly one in two chance of getting cancer in your lifetime. The radiation from Chernobyl is going to could increase that to 43.1%. Mm. So it's it's not trivial, right. but it, it's a very very small and it is much less than when you send or I send a patient for a CT scan. And I think some people listening are going to find that surprising. I mean, because there's been so much, uh, you know, so much put out on the other side. And, and some organizations obviously have an agenda, you know, behind that. But um, let's take a step back for just a moment. It, we talked about this in the last episode. And this was the Soviet experience with um, acute radiation um, trauma. And you had some indications that they obviously had experience in this, but you didn't really know where. So you speculated this on this in the book. Um, you mentioned the accident at the nuclear, nuclear waste disposal site at, um, and I'm going to probably mispronounce this, it's uh, Kaistum, and that's in the Ural Mountains. Right. And you wrote... Um, Perhaps this is where the Soviets gathered their knowledge of beta burns and radiation scoring. Perhaps not. Have you learned any more? Has there been anything else that's been declassified, Soviet archives, about this incident or anything else that had happened previously that's kind of shed light on this? Yeah, I think, uh, yes, the answer is yes. There, there, there are lots of, you know, new data. Um, and, you know, I think most Americans don't know of all of the accidents that have occurred in the making of the American atomic bomb and the making of our nuclear weapons, um, right. including um, yeah. one that uh, you may want to come to at the end, which was uh, an experiment at Los Alamos um, called Tickling the Dragon's Tail. That was the first of these radiation accidents involved in the production of nuclear weapons. So we've had, you know, a number of radiation accidents that are that were classified that have become unclassified and i think the soviet union to a greater degree of course but the soviet union is in the same situation you know the production um and waste problems with the involved in the production of nuclear weapons cause accidents and these accidents have to be dealt with and governments, no government is anxious to reveal what exactly is going on. I mean, God knows what's going on in North Korea. Right. 
One other question, and then move on. I was curious when I was reading your book, and I read it uh, actually since our last conversation. Um, you talked about Soviet medical care, and just in general, not not just with um, the treatment of the victims of Chernobyl. And one interesting thing you brought up was an assembly line surgical procedure, where you have different spe- uh, specialists, different surgeons doing different parts of the procedure, and the bo- the bed actually moving down the line from room to room almost like an assembly line. Tell us a little bit about this, because I've never even heard of anything like this. And maybe you know one or two other things that you found pretty notable about Soviet medical care compared to our system. Right, well the, um, the, the um, operation you're referring to, the Soviets uh, really developed radial keratotomy to correct myopia. And they scaled it up um, I, I would say incredibly, like a automobile um, production assembly line. So um, I visited the, these facilities. Um, what would happen is um, if you needed a radial keratotomy, so you came in, a um, bunch of people came in, um, mostly young men, I would say, but not exclusively. So there was a locker room, and you, you would take off your clothes like you would in a health club. You'd get a cup of tea, and then you'd lie down on a bed. And these beds were moving along on an assembly line. So hmm. for a couple of minutes, you're, you're moving along, and then um, someone puts a laser uh, over, your, over one eye, and they map out where the radial keratotomy should be done. And now you are moving along very slowly and you, you enter an operating suite on this um, conveyor belt. So there, uh, there were five um, ophthalmological surgeons at different stations. So five beds move in and now the patient's head is under one of these five surgeons. And now this surgeon is gonna do the radial keratotomy. And he has a little button that he presses, he or she presses when they're finished. So now all five beds are you know, occupied, five people are getting radial keratotomies. And when all five are done, these five beds move out. And now you're moving down the assembly line again and after a few minutes, you get off the assembly line. Uh, someone bandages you while you're on the assembly line, and you get off, and now you go back to the locker room, and you get your clothes, you get a cup of tea, and you go home. And um, in a very practical way, they're doing one eye at a time. Okay, so you go home, you come back a week later, and you repeat the procedure. And so using this approach, you know, which was, uh, seemed absolutely strange to us, but was highly efficient, of course, the surgeons doing this had extraordinary experience. I mean, they could do 50 radio, radio keratotomies in a day. Yeah. And you could, deal, you could deal with hundreds of patients. And then the patient would come back a week later and get his other eye treated. So it, it was quite a quite an amazing um, example of uh, this is sort of the 
one of let's call it one of the high points of what Soviets could do. Um, now, of course, there were low points like the quality of hospitals, right. um, the cleanliness of hospitals. Some of the hospitals, like the Cardiology Institute, were spectacular. I mean, they were as nice or nicer than any hospital you could ever find in the United States. Because usually the head of that institute was a ranking member of the Communist Party and perhaps even a member of the Politburo. But at the other extreme, I mean, if you would go to uh, distant areas in what was the Soviet Union, you'd be hard-pressed to find toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. So a huge range of medical facilities. Skilled, skilled doctors, but limited resources, poor infrastructure, persisting even till today. I mean, uh, I'm involved in doing large Soviet, uh, nationwide, Russian-wide trials of the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And we have huge disparities in what <coughs> is the quality of medical care for these leukemia patients in the hematology center in Moscow and what can be done in one of the more remote hospitals. Um, before we leave Chernobyl, quick question. Um, your involvement uh, certainly was an opportunity for great uh, cooperation and great um, uh, interaction between the Soviet Union and, and Russia and Western, or sorry, um, uh, United States medicine. Uh, is that uh, was that really there? I mean, was was this ever going to extend to other cooperation? And do you think the opportunity was taken or missed? Well, you know, even during the Cold War, there were cooperative medical activities. Mm -hmm. We, uh, for example, we had a series of sponsored teleconferences on immune therapy of cancer that were sponsored by the the U.S. National Cancer Institute. So there, there was always a, a lifeline or, or communications and cooperation um, between Soviet and American doctors during the Cold War. But um, I think, you know, I can only speak for my own um, experience. I mean, so, you know, I've remained very active in the treatment of cancer and the treatment, uh, particularly of hematological cancers in Russia. And as I just mentioned, uh, I'm involved in several clinical trials. So uh, I think, um, you know, it's hard to separate the demise of the Soviet Union, the increase in wealth in the Soviet Union uh, from what might have been the aftermath of the Chernobyl accident and, and what goodwill was gained as a consequence thereof. Interesting. All right, so um, getting closer on time here, so we got to move beyond Chernobyl. Um, and we'll probably have to move a little faster here because there was so much that you did after this. Um, and there have been a number of incidents. Sometimes uh, they kind of fade from memory here, but you know, everywhere from Brazil to Japan to here in the United States. 
Tell us about your experience coming home and how you started to become sought after as one, an expert in this field, but also as a, um, as a resource really for nuclear disaster response. And um, give us an idea how that developed. Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, these accidents, these big accidents are few and far between. So if you're the physician involved in the accident and you've, you've never seen anything like it before, it's like being a surgeon, being asked to do surgery that you've never done before. So you would be, you know, very happy and um, pleased to have a consultation or get someone who'd been in that situation before, you know, get them to the site and get them to help you. So, um, you know, it's um, not that I'm in any way a genius, but, you know, when an accident happens in Brazil, for example, where they had no experience with an accident of this magnitude, um, you know, my colleagues there called me and I happened to be in Bonn, Germany at the time. And they said, you know, you got to get here. Same thing true in, you know, in Japan. Um, Again, none of us um, have a lot of experience with these kinds of things. And so, you know, you'd like help, just like any of us doing a complex operation would like someone who had some prior experience. So I think that, you know, one thing leads to another leads to another and you gain, you gain more and more experience each one of these accidents you participate in. So let's pick one here. Um, the Tokyo Mura accident, this was in 1997 in Japan. Um, this had to do with um, uh, basically a couple staff members at the facility moving, um, is, I think it was nuclear fuel or, or spent fuel. Um, were you involved in this incident or in the response of it? Yes. So, yes. so there's a lot of curiosity about this, more so than I even recognized, um, particularly of one of the workers, um, Ayasi uh, Uchi, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. There's some speculation that he maybe has been exposed to more radiation than any human on record. Um, one, sh- you know, help us understand a little more about the truth of this, because there's so much information, including really graphic pictures of, of the gentleman on online. But tell us about your experience treating him and the other workers and give us an idea of what exactly happened here. So um, Tokamura is, um, is a suburb. I think of it as a suburb of Tokyo. And um, somewhat oddly, there is a nuclear fuels reprocessing plant in what would look like a residential neighborhood. Um, So um, there were three workers and um, what what they were trying to do was to take, you're trying to recover the the uranium that hasn't been fissioned for recycling. And so they were trying to do this uh, chemical process, it's a chemical process in a tank and you know it just depends on the, the the mass of uranium at a certain point when you have enough uranium mass together then you start a chain reaction it's called a criticality so so you have a sudden 
usually a flash of blue light, and you have the release of radiation, gamma rays and neutrons. So these three workers were just standing around this tank. They, they didn't follow the procedures precisely. They reached a criticality and they were immediately exposed to radiation and they were aware of it because, because of the very high doses given over a very short period of time. They, were, um, they immediately became nauseated and um, and so the emergency, you know, all kinds of alarms, of course, went off the minute this criticality was reached. They were evacuated. Um, and there were two issues, of course. One is the release of radiation in the midst of a residential area. So that fortunately was containable. Um, the second thing was how to deal with these three victims, and they were brought to Tokyo University Hospital first. And uh, then the uh, surgeon who was responsible for their care called me. I think I was in uh, Florida at the time. And as I said, you know, he was looking for some help because he, you know, he hadn't been, he's, you know, a world-class surgeon, but not a surgeon who deals with radiation accident victims. Sure. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so he called me and asked me to fly to Tokyo. And over the course of a couple of weeks, we tried to rescue um, these three guys. Um, and um, it was difficult. Two of them died, not from bone marrow failure. We were able to address the bone marrow failure problem reasonably well and in fact with some innovative techniques but these very high doses lead to uh, respiratory failure lung acute interstitial pneumonia and that that occurs after about two months so you know we don't know who's gonna die of respiratory failure so Immediately after the accident, we're trying to correct bone marrow failure. Um, and then, you know, we sort of see how it plays out. And unfortunately for two of them, it played out poorly. For the third one, we were able to rescue him. Interesting. So, I mean, is it true, do you think, that they were exposed to much higher levels of radiation? Um, or was it not as remarkable as uh, some people speculate? No, no, the, the doses of radiation were very high. So, of course, the atomic bomb victims were exposed to higher doses of radiation, but they died. Right. So what we're talking, they died immediately, and they died. For, I think most of us don't understand what an atomic bomb is. When you have, uh, let's say, 250,000 deaths, from an atomic bomb. Most of those deaths are from the percussive force of the bomb and from superfires. Only about 10% of the deaths from a nuclear <clears throat> weapon are actually from radiation. So, you know, they're called atomic weapons, but to some great extent, they're just very, very powerful bombs and they kill people 
predominantly the way an ordinary bomb kills people, except they are unfortunately more efficient at killing people than conventional weapons. Right. Well, let's uh, jump ahead a little further here and Fukushima. As far as I know, this is the most recent incident that you were involved with. Um, Tell us a little bit about this. Um, What happened? What led to the incident and then your involvement there, too? Okay, I'll try to make it brief. So um, the key thing in a nuclear power facility is you need to cool the nuclear fuel. You have to have water running through the core of the reactor at all times to carry away the heat. And so in a nuclear power facility, there are redundant systems. So um, you have these large pumps that are you know, driving the water, cooling the fuel. Um, so one source of, elect- uh, of driving these pumps is electricity. So the nuclear power facility is producing electricity and it's feeding back electricity to drive these pumps to cool. So that's an internal system. Now, you also have, in case that fails, you have an external system, and that external system is the electrical grid. So on the grid are electrical power facilities, nuclear or coal-fired, and the nuclear power facility in question can suck in or tap into the grid and bring electricity in externally if the internal source of electricity fails. And then finally, as the last redundancy, is to have a bunch of generators there that run on diesel fuel. So if you are not producing electricity yourself and you can't get electricity off of the grid, you can turn on the diesel generators and produce at least electricity for a while. And what happened at Fukushima was something that um, was really not envisioned. The earthquake, of course, knocked out the Fukushima electrical generation. But because of the extent of the earthquake, it knocked out the grid. So internal and external sources of electricity to drive the pumps, to cool the core of the to um, cool the core of the reactor, both of those electrical sources were knocked out. And so immediately the diesel generators flip on. But what happened was that this wall of of water from the tsunami flooded the diesel engines. And so all three potential sources of electricity to drive the cooling system were knocked out and of course then the fuel overheats and it starts to melt and you have gases released and if you if you saw this on television which I'm sure many millions of people did you see these buildings exploding now that's that's not a nuclear explosion that's hydrogen gas produced in the reactor core exploding but now you know you have uh, you know you have a real disaster. Were there any deaths or um, illness, or was this more of a minor incident compared to some of the other ones? Well, 
It, it's not minor in terms of the consequences of it. I mean, you have the evacuation of more than 100,000 people. Um, you have a, a problem which is still not solved. I mean, it will take, um, it's estimated that it will take about another 20 years to dismantle the Fukushima Daiichi power station and deal with the nuclear fuel, the spent fuel. So, um, but in terms of, uh, and there are medical consequences because when you evacuate 100 or 120,000 people, I mean, you have people that are on dialysis, you have people that, elderly people that are getting cardiac uh, related drugs or have diabetes. So there were, there were a number of deaths, not a small number of deaths in, in people that have nothing to do with radiation that were consequence of evacuation. And they actually raised an important question of whether we, whether we should have evacuated those people. But in terms of deaths caused by radiation, um, from a scientific point of view, there are none. Uh, no one you know, was exposed to a sufficient dose of radiation. I mean, of course it will increase their cancer risk but it's on the order of magnitude that I mentioned of getting one or two or three CT scans. But, um, you know, for um, political reasons, the Japanese government has decided to declare several of the workers who developed cancer to have been victims, you know, that their cancers were caused by the accident, and they are receiving compensation for that. So this is a sort of an unfortunate mixture of you know politics and science. Mm -hmm. That it's really unavoidable. Yeah, perhaps so. Um, well, Robert, we're uh, getting towards the end of the hour here, and I feel just like last time. There's just so much more we could talk about, but um, we do have to let you get back as it is getting late there. Um, Maybe to kind of wrap things up, one Keith, do you have any other questions? No, no, it's good. Um, give us a, and I know this is a, a big question to ask at the end, but nuclear power in general. Um, you have a lot of recommendations at the end of your book, Final Warning, but this was decades ago, and you know, lots happened since then. Do you feel that we've made progress or that we've learned something, say, from Chernobyl, from some of these other incidents? And What's your overall feeling about nuclear power, uh, the nuclear power energy industry right now? I mean, is this something that is just too risky? Is you know, when we consider all of the problems, you know, not to mention nuclear waste disposal, is this something we should move away from? And um, you know, what? And again, what lessons have we been able to apply to make things safer? Sure. Um, well, um, I, I I could I can tell you what I think should happen but is not going to happen in the United States, but is happening in a lot of developing countries where most people in the world live. So, I mean, of course, there were some specific lessons from the, um, from the accident and the nuclear regulatory, our, the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission has instituted a number of changes in, uh, in safety regulations and in, the physical structure of nuclear power plants that 
will increase the safety margin. Uh, and that's also true, for example, in Japan, where the defense against tsunami waves uh, has been upgraded. So there are just some practical lessons. Now, from a point of view of responding to uh, these accidents, my colleagues and I you know, have learned a lot, of course, and we have modified um, to some extent how we would how we will respond or should respond to the next accident in terms of how. But on the bigger question, um, which is, you know, what's going to happen with nuclear energy? Well, you know, we have a clear, in my mind, a clear crisis with global warming. And there are a number of solutions, you know, conservation, uh, biofuels, um, and so forth and so on, hydroelectric. But none of these alternative energy sources and conservation, they cannot solve our problem in the next decade or two. So I'm always amazed that environmentalists, who in my mind should be strong supporters of nuclear energy, are typically opponents of nuclear energy. Um, now, in most of the de much of the developing world, I mean, where do people live? They live in China. One in every five human beings lives in China. One in every five human beings lives in Africa, in India. Now, these countries, China, where I am right now, for example, is building um, 35 next generation nuclear power facilities. They've got 1.4 billion people. And they're not interested in what the United States opinion is. Our situation is completely different. Uh, you know, building a nuclear power facility takes, you know, two decades and costs billions of dollars. And we don't have a long-term energy plan in the United States. So if you're the CEO of an energy company, you're going to be the CEO for five years. You could spend billions of dollars, and it's never going to come to fruition in your lifetime. So we have things driven by short-term goals, not by a 50-year horizon. And therefore, I think, unfortunately, this next generation of safer, uh, modular nuclear reactors that people all over the world are building um, it is not going to happen in the United States because the political and economic climate is adverse to this. We're, we're closing nuclear power plants. Much of the rest of the world are building nuclear power facilities. And so, you know, most people think that having you know, being the key person to deal with these accidents, I must be violently against nuclear energy. But I, I, I feel quite to the contrary. I think that if properly used, if properly deployed, the it's our, really our only solution in the next few decades to the problem of global warming. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree. Um, to close it up here, Robert, uh, Give us an idea what you're up to these days. Um, you know, I mean, how much of it is retirement and what are the projects and, and things are you thinking about right now? 
Yeah, well, we have six six children, so uh, retirement is not uh, a word that's mentioned in our family. <laughs> um, I think the attitude is dying with your boots on is more the attitude in our family. Um, so I've, I've got a number of things going on. I'm, um, I'm on the faculty of the Imperial College in London in the Hematology um, Research Center. Um, I'm just in the process of uh, closing down my um, activities at UCLA where I've been involved for the last 40 years. My laboratory uh, in molecular biology is at the Weizmann Institute in Israel, so I spend some time there. And then I'm working uh, part-time for um, a large biopharmaceutical firm, which is about to be absorbed by Bristol-Myers Squibb. So um, I, I guess I'm hopefully soon to be a Bristol-Myers Squibb employee. And uh, I guess finally, um, I do travel quite a bit, as you mentioned, and uh, I have graduate students in a number of countries. Uh, I have six graduate students here in China, for example, in different cities. And so, uh, and I edit uh, a couple of journals uh, in yeah, the field. Yeah, you're of not slowing down at all. <laughs> um, well, as I say, um, my wife and six kids. Well, I think it's not necessarily producing money, but the fear of having me at home. <laughs> well, whatever the motivation is, um, like I said, there's so much more we could have talked about because there's so much more that you're up to. But uh, we do have to let you go because, my gosh, it's getting close to midnight where you are. So got to get some sleep in the middle of all this. Um, Robert, thank you again for coming on with us. Um, it was a you know real rare privilege to have you on. Well, thank you for your excellent questions, and thank you for the chance to explain uh, some of these complicated issues, you know, to, to other physicians, because, you know, the, the public relies, uh, rightly or wrongly, the public relies on physicians to um, explain, like when there's an accident, or you're about to get an x-ray or something, Phys you know, people come to their physician and ask him or her, what do you think? Now, I think we all know that physicians are either not or are, are poorly trained in these issues of radiation. So I think it's our obligation to, to learn this. If you're going to give advice, and I know of no physician who's asked the question who doesn't give advice, <laughs> so if you're going to give advice, if you're going to give advice, please, you know, learn um, some of the basics of this so that you can give uh, a, an intelligent answer to the people that are counting on you to explain these more complex things to them. Well, um, we're going to put some of these other resources up online. We, I already have the series that you wrote for the cancer letter. You'd sent me the drafts of these. Um, earlier before our first discussion, so those are up there in case anybody wants to read that. That's a really interesting take on the HBO miniseries from your point of view. And then um, the book, I mean, Final Warning, this is not a new book. I mean, it's been out for a long time, but uh, it was fascinating. I mean, there's just all sorts of things we didn't even get to. You traveling with Phil Donahue to do its uh, TV show outside of Chernobyl and Armin Hammer, who's a fascinating guy. We just, you know, this is one where it is actually 
very much worth reading the book because there's so much more to talk about. But we'll get those yeah. up online so people can read further. Could, and could you could you also could you uh, Eric, Eric Lax and I published a book about three years ago, the title of which is Radiation: What You Need to Know. I've, yeah, I've got that one so, right in front of me too. So I'll put okay, a link up so to that. That if if you're going to read one book to bring yourself up to speed about radiation so you can give people and your family solid advice. Um, I recommend, you know, reading something like that. Uh, n and notwithstanding, I get five cents if you buy a copy. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that, it, you know, every little bit helps. That's right, for those six kids and all the grandkids, I understand. Absolutely. Right. Well, everyone, that is Dr. Robert Gale and, uh, Robert, thank you again for coming on. It was just an enormous amount of fun, just absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And everyone, wherever, whenever you're listening to us, take care. And we'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. Yeah.